0: We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited-edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details.
1: Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with our health lead. It has been and continues to be a cold, dark COVID winter, but we in the United States are finally seeing the first signs of light on the pandemic front. There is now a third vaccine, Johnson & Johnson, just asked the FDA for emergency use authorization. Cases are down 50% since the U.S. reached its peak almost a month ago. Hospitalizations are also down nearly 13% since last week. And more Americans are finally getting shots. The number of vaccines administered this week outnumbers new cases of COVID 10 to 1. But that's not to say that serious struggles do not remain. Getting schools reopened remains a significant logistical and political challenge. Vaccinations still need to ramp up. The spread is not yet under control. And more, as CNN's Lucy Kafanov reports.
2: The fight against COVID-19 progressing on three fronts today. More shots, more sites, and more vaccines heading towards approval. New York's mega vaccination site opening up at Yankee Stadium this morning.
3: I was in and out two seconds.
2: In Maryland, the back parking lot at Six Flags, now a mass vaccination center.
4: The idea eventually is to build an infrastructure that can handle millions of vaccines.
2: And in Northern California, Oakland's Coliseum and Levi Stadium now vaccination hubs. American troops joining the fight against COVID. The Biden administration announced it will deploy 1,000 service members across the country to help with vaccination efforts. This as COVID-19 vaccine doses administered in the U.S. outnumbered new cases 10 to 1 this week.
5: It is getting better, and I think uh, we're going to get much, much better yet.
2: Another 1.3 million shots in the arms of Americans reported Thursday. New cases down 30 percent in the last two weeks, and according to the CDC, down 61 percent since the January 8th peak. Hospitalizations dropped below 90,000 for the first time since November. A new study, which hasn't yet been peer-reviewed, found that AstraZeneca's vaccine, not yet authorized in the U.S., is effective against that faster-spreading variant first identified in the U.K. While well, Johnson & Johnson submitted its single-dose vaccine for emergency FDA authorization and could become available next month.
6: It's a single dose. It's, it's shipped and stored at refrigerator temperature, so that makes it much easier.
2: With the CDC set to release new guidance on reopening schools in the coming week.
7: Today, we are going to be vaccinating teachers.
2: 24 states plus Washington, D.C., now allowing teachers to get the vaccine. We're so excited because we will be able to get back. Not the case at several districts, where teachers' unions have demanded more safety measures before getting back, a thorny issue for the White House.
0: Will President Biden use the power of the bully pulpit to help cajole teachers who are unwilling to go back to schools to go back?
8: One, well, I'm just going to reject the premise of the question. The president is absolutely committed to reopening schools. He wants them not just to reopen, but to stay open. And he wants to do that in a safe way. The Biden
2: administration today announced plans to make 60 million at-home COVID-19 tests available this summer. The White House also still exploring sending face masks directly to all Americans.
4: We want to get this
2: back on track. And not wearing a mask when traveling? That could get you a $250 fine, according to the TSA. And new today, British researchers releasing a report that found the use of convalescent plasma. That's the treatment promoted by the Trump administration that's made from the blood of coronavirus patients who have recovered. Well, that might have actually helped fuel the spread of dangerous mutations of the virus. Coincidentally, the FDA yesterday announced that it is scaling back its authorization of that treatment because of confusing data about its efficiency.
1: Jake. All right, Lucy Kafanoff, thank you so much. When it comes to the debate Between health officials and government officials who argue that schools need to be opened as soon as possible for in-person classes, with mitigation efforts in place, of course, there seems to be no daylight between the Biden White House and teachers unions who are pushing back, demanding that they all get vaccinated first. Some teachers unions demanding that all the students also get vaccinated first. This week, the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, said this.
8: Vaccination of teachers is not a prerequisite for safe reopening of schools.
1: Vaccinations of teachers, not a prereq for safely reopening schools. To this, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that.
8: Dr. Walensky um, spoke to this uh, in her personal capacity. Obviously, she's the head of the CDC, but we're going to wait for the final guidance to come out so we can use that as a guide for schools around the country.
1: CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins me now. Uh, Sanjay, Obviously, schools need to be safe before they reopen. Masking, ventilation, smaller class sizes, people with pre-existing conditions who are vulnerable need to still be able to stay at home. Mm -hmm. All that's important. But this is the White House claiming that the CDC director was speaking in her personal capacity, undermining her own top health official seemingly for seemingly saying vaccinations are not necessary to reopen schools safely, which is what the health community has been saying for for months and months now. It's inexplicable what's going on.
5: Yeah, I mean, Jake, science has to lead the way here. Um, but but I think it's a little bit more of a murky issue. And, and let, me, let me explain it this way. I've been talking to lots of people about it. Jonathan Reiner wrote a great op-ed about this today on CNN.com. A couple things. First of all, there is data to show that there are, there are situations where schools can reopen safely without teachers being vaccinated. These are the studies that the CDC is pointing to. There was one out of Wisconsin, you know, showed that the school uh, sort of... Uh, um, Virus transmission was a, lot, was a lot lower than the surrounding community, close to 40% lower. Out of around 5,300 students and staff, 191 people became infected over the semester, and only seven of those were actually related to in-school transmission. So, what do we learn from that in North Carolina and other studies that it can be done? Problem is, many school districts don't have some of those resources. They don't have the space. They don't have adequate ventilation. Some of them don't even have enough masks and hand hygiene that's going to be, uh, that they can be confident it's going to be available for everybody. So, you know, I mean, what I'm hearing over and over again is that the, there's teachers who are just frightened of that. You say it can be done safely, but our district cannot do it safely because we don't have the basic things. Uh, so that's why the vaccinations become increasingly important. That becomes a safeguard for these, for these uh, teachers and these staff. You know, I, what, the situation we're in now, is, as uh, you just heard from Lucy, is that most states are now going to be offering vaccines to teachers. And I think that process is going to ramp up. So that may obviate this issue. In the beginning of this pandemic, we didn't know what was going on. So I think everyone was trying to play it safe. We have data now on what needs to be done. But some school districts just can't do it. And that's why the vaccines end up being this really important backstop for them.
1: Well, the CDC guidelines, which we're expecting next week, should be an important part of that uh, in terms of what the schools need to do. Then the districts can satisfy the requirements. But if teachers are saying, well, I don't care what the scientists say, I need to feel safe and I'm only going to feel safe if every teacher is vaccinated and every student's vaccinated, why would we defer to somebody's feelings over the science?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, the I, you know, I'm a scientist. The science should lead the way. But, you know, Jake, throughout this pandemic, I, I don't think we can dismiss people's feelings of concern here. It is a very low likelihood, obviously, of somebody getting sick. But if you have a staff member who says, I, I teach in a poorly ventilated classroom, it's cold outside, I cannot open the windows, I have pre-existing conditions, how do you start to parse this all out for people? And, and, you know, what kind of environment might it be? And this is subjective, admittedly, but what kind of environment may, would it be if the teachers who are teaching feel unsafe? I think it's going to be different district to district, and that's what, uh, you know, the, the CDC is going to have to take into account in their recommendations. We heard what Dr. Walensky said. She doesn't think vaccinations are a prerequisite. So what are the prerequisites? And if school districts can't, can't meet those prerequisites in terms of ventilation, in terms of space, in terms of masking, then what? Can they only open then with vaccines? I think these are the questions that hopefully we're going to get some answers on over the next week. It's critically important.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing that we've made it to February and there hasn't been uh, guidance uh, yet the way that that we need it and our kids need it. The Biden administration is hoping to resurrect a proposal from the Trump administration that never took off to mail face masks to every American. What do you think of this? Is that the best use of time and resources right now? I mean, can't people who want face masks get them already?
5: Yeah, I mean, this This is fascinating. I got to tell you, um, so this is actually the package of face masks that were supposed to go out last year via the Postal Service. You, you may remember that, Jake. They, they didn't go out via the Postal Service. Some were administered through faith-based groups and things like that. Um, I agree with you, Jake. I mean, they these masks, these are cloth masks. They're much more widely available than they used to be. That doesn't seem to be the problem. The problem seems to be that there's there's you know, a significant percentage of people who still just won't wear them, not because of availability, just for other reasons. They don't believe in them. They're making a political statement, whatever the reason may be. So, you know, I, I, I don't know that it's the best use. I mean, I think uh, spending a lot of time reminding people of the value of masks. We obviously have been trying to do that for the last year now, roughly. Um, but uh, it's it's um, I'm, I'm not sure that it will, it will make a big difference. I understand why they're doing it, but I'm not sure what the actual impact will be.
1: I mean, you can get them at, literally at gas stations and CVS and Rite Aids right. and Walgreens all over the country. Sanjay, so thank you so much. Appreciate it, as always. A well-known economic yeah. advisor to the Obama White House says that President Biden's COVID stimulus plan is too big. Well, now the White House is firing back. Then, a fight heating up between the White House and the Texas governor over something you cannot see with your naked eye. Stay with us. In our politics lead, President Biden seems convinced that his COVID relief plan needs to be big more than it needs to be bipartisan, and he is not budging. Democrats are with him for now, but as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, Obama's former chief economic advisor Larry Summers today emerged at Biden's perhaps most unwelcome detractor on the size of this legislation.
9: It's time to act.
4: We can reduce suffering in this country. President Joe Biden saying bluntly today the American pain is too deep to go small and too urgent for a drawn-out Washington debate.
9: I believe the American people are looking right now to their government for help to do our job, to not let them down. So I'm going to act,
4: and I'm going to act fast. The president making clear he's plunging ahead with his American rescue plan, saying if Democrats have to pass the bill alone, so be it. He invited Republican help, but said their proposals did not meet the magnitude of the economic need.
9: What Republicans have proposed is either to do nothing
4: or not enough. And Thanks for coming down. It was the capstone of a whirlwind week that started with Republicans in the Oval Office on Monday Jobs and ended with Democratic leaders there today, charting a path forward to pass the COVID relief plan through a budget process that only needs a simple majority in the Senate.
9: Here's what I won't do. I'm not cutting the size of the checks. They're going to be $1,400, period.
4: That's what the American people were promised. But Biden said he is willing to negotiate who gets those checks, signaling his interest in targeting the help toward Americans who need it most, not some families making $300,000 a year. The president and his advisers dismissed criticism from a top Democratic economist that the $1.9 trillion plan was too big and could overheat the economy.
2: Is the Biden administration going too big?
4: Uh, No, Uh, I firmly uh, would disagree with that contention. Pushback to Larry Summers, a top economic adviser in the Obama administration, who said today such a large bill would eat into other priorities, writing in The Washington Post... After resolving the coronavirus crisis, how will political and economic space be found for the public investments that should be the nation's highest priority? But Biden's saying that mentality would delay the American recovery.
9: Don't worry. Hang on. Things are going to get better. We're going to go smaller, so it's just going to take us a lot longer. Like until 2025.
4: I can't in good conscience do that. Now, one thing driving the urgency of President Biden was the jobs report out this morning. It showed that only 49,000 jobs overall were added to the economy in the month of January alone. That is what led the president to say, look, the economy is still in trouble. Now, Jake, it's an open question if this closes the door to bipartisanship on other parts of the agenda less than three weeks into the Biden presidency. Senior administration officials i talked to say it does not. There are many other opportunities to work on a bipartisan way on the agenda. We will see about that. But on this American Rescue Plan, one thing is clear. It's supported by some two-thirds of the American people. That's why the White House believes it's easy for them to bypass Republicans.
1: Jake? All right. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. I want to bring in uh, a CNN Senior White House Correspondent Phil Mattingly. Phil, uh, tell us more about the argument that Larry Summers is, is making um, and... Why it's so frustrating to the White House?
10: Yeah, so start with two things on the outset. One, Larry Summers, obviously former top Obama economic official, says that it is a bold plan, and he is also concerned about more about undershooting than overshooting. But the scale of the plan at 1.9 trillion dollars is what he's concerned about, given the current economic. current economic elements in the, in the United States right now. He's talking about the output gap, basically what the output of the economy actually is versus what it could potentially be and says what the Biden administration is putting into place would overshoot where they need to be by a significant amount that could lead to overheating of the economy and a potential increase in inflation. The broader point Larry Summers is trying to make that is that if inflation goes up, then you're going to have to raise taxes and all of a sudden austerity comes into play and the broader progressive goals of this administration won't be possible in Congress. Why this frustrates the White House when I talk to White House advisors is as one put it simply. This is not stimulus. Larry is looking at it as if it's stimulus. They view this from a broader perspective. They view this economically as trying to essentially float the American population until the virus gets under control, not to stimulate the economy, float the economy, and as such put into place several things, whether it's unemployment insurance, whether it's direct payments, whether it's increases of the child tax credit or earned income tax credit that allow the American people to basically hang on until vaccinations are more widespread.
1: All right. Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. Appreciate it. I'll be talking about the stimulus package on CNN's State of the Union this Sunday with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. We'll also get a response from Republican Senator Pat Toomey of the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We'll also have Senator Bernie Sanders and Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern Sunday morning, only on CNN. A defiant defense full of contradictions and hypocrisy from bigot Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. After she lost all of her committee assignments, why this Republican problem does not seem to be going away. Stay with us. In our politics lead, something of a reckoning for House Republicans after another tumultuous week revealed serious fractures in the party. Members overwhelmingly refused to punish Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia during a vote last night for spreading bigoted and deranged conspiracy theories and now Greene is warning that if the Republican Party tries to distance, distance itself from her or from President Trump they will get humiliated in the 2022 midterm elections as CNN's Ryan Nobles now reports.
11: One day after she was stripped of her committee assignments in a dramatic vote the resolution
2: is adopted
11: Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has pushed bigoted and deranged conspiracy theories about Jews, Muslims, 9-11 and school shootings and called for violence against Speaker Pelosi, is showing no signs of backing down.
2: I'm fine with being kicked off of my committees because it'd be a waste of
11: my time. A defiant Greene firmly declared her vision for the future of the Republican Party, led by former President Donald Trump. Republican
2: voters support him still. The party is his. It doesn't belong to anybody else.
11: But there are signs the rest of the party isn't so sure. 11 House Republicans joined Democrats to kick Green off her committees, distancing themselves from her rhetoric. Representative Nicole Malliotakis, a committed Trump supporter, was among them. As Americans, we must hold ourselves to a higher standard and fully condemn such comments regardless of which side of the aisle they come from, she wrote in a statement after her vote. The GOP divide also playing out in other places as well. In Nebraska, Senator Ben Sass, who easily won re-election in the fall, is in the process of being censured by the state's Republican committee because of his criticism of Trump.
0: You are welcome to censure me again, but let's be clear about why this is happening. It's because I still believe, as you used to, that politics isn't about the weird worship of one dude.
11: And while Sass and others navigate a world of Trump worshipers, Green is fast becoming the Trump emissary on Capitol Hill, taking a page out of the Trump playbook by refusing to apologize for supporting a call for the execution of Speaker Pelosi when pressed by Russia CNN's Russia Jessica Dean, showing just how apologetic she truly I is.
2: I stand by the fact that you said Nancy Pelosi is guilty of treason. And that's I think you heard my speech
11: yesterday. You owe
2: the people an apology. You lied about President Trump.
11: In a late development here on Capitol Hill, some Republican members of Congress testing the new policy as it relates to metal detectors outside the House chamber. A senior Democratic aide telling our Kristen Wilson and Annie Grayer that Andrew Clyde of Georgia and Louie Gohmert of Texas have both been fined $5,000 for not going through those metal detectors uh, appropriately. Uh, Jake, uh, it's clear that Speaker Pelosi is not messing around as it relates to this new policy.
1: All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Fred Upton of Michigan. He's one of the 11 Republicans who voted to strip Congresswoman Greene of her committee assignments and one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach President Trump. You're in a pretty small club there, uh, Congressman Upton. Uh, What do you say to Republicans who say you're on the outs, you're a traitor, etc.?
3: You know, my oath is to the Constitution. Uh, I'm not afraid to criticize any president, regardless of party. Uh, I have disagreements. I supported President Trump on a number of initiatives. Uh, the tax cuts, the wall, uh, repeal of uh, uh, Obamacare, and trying to make it better, a whole number of different things. But, you know, at some point you say enough is enough, and so we looked at uh, my colleague uh, Ms. Green. She didn't apologize. Uh, you know, I've been to a lot of schools. Uh, I watched you uh, a couple years ago moderate the debate between uh, Rubio and Ted Deutsch uh, on, with some of those Parkland kids. Uh, I met with the Parkland kids, as I did when I served on the Education Committee back in the 90s, and we had the Columbine kids come and actually testify before us. Uh, not a dry eye was there. Uh, to think that this was a staged event, that it was going to be used uh, just for gun control, now, I've got family members that were in Vegas uh, for that at that shooting uh, a few years ago on, over Labor Day weekend. This was not staged. Uh, she was unapologetic, she was unremorseful, and that was pretty evident in her press conference that she held uh, this morning.
1: Yeah, she wouldn't even uh, apologize, wouldn't even address the issue that she had called for Nancy Pelosi to be assassinated, to be executed. So let me ask you, uh, Congressman, what does it say about the state of the Republican Party that only 11 Republicans voted to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committees because of her insanities and her bigotry but 61, 61 Republicans voted to remove Congresswoman Liz Cheney from her leadership position because she voted the way you did to impeach President Trump for inciting the riot. What what does it say about your party?
3: Well I'd say a couple things. Uh, First of all, as it related to yesterday, I would have preferred that the steering committee on the Republican side actually did that on her own uh, and had that affirmed by our whole conferences. Not a lot of folks uh, really uh, approve of the statements that she made. As it related to the vote that we had in Liz Cheney in our closed Republican conference, uh, she prevailed better than two to one. I thought that was actually a pretty good signal to folks that you can vote your conscience uh, and not be taken to task for it. she Liz Cheney and you've had her on your show lots of times she is a smart dynamic well-spoken woman leader and and that was clearly evident when we went through our our Republican conference and she had a vote that was pretty overwhelming frankly we wanted that vote to show how strong she was
1: well you seem to be suggesting it's an apples to to oranges debate that some of the people that didn't vote to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committees maybe did so because they're not comfortable with the majority party doing it on the floor of the House as opposed to the leadership of the Republican Party doing it privately. So where is the leadership of your party? I mean, where is Kevin McCarthy? It seems like a very obvious thing to do. This person has called for Nancy Pelosi to be assassinated. She's uh, said all sorts of anti-Semitic things, anti-Muslim things, uh, said that school shootings are bogus. I'm going to strip her from the committees because I find that abhorrent. But why won't Kevin McCarthy do that?
3: Well, you know, Kevin did have a private conversation that's now become public uh, where he, he appealed to Steny Hoyer and he said, Steny, we'll remove her as Republicans, we'll take her off uh, the education committee if we can forestall this vote. We won't need to have a vote. We'll, we'll do it on our own, very much along the lines of what John Boehner, what Paul Ryan uh, did in the past when we had some folks uh, say some things that really weren't in the mainstream. Steny rejected it. Uh, they wanted the full vote in the House, and of course, uh, that's what we had. But again, from my perspective, I would have preferred that we did this in-house rather than having a full vote on the House floor. This was, you know, it's never happened like this before. Uh, and so it broke precedent. Uh, I hope that it doesn't continue to, to see that happen. Uh, Republicans ought to decide which Republicans serve, and Democrats are the, the same. But And for that reason, I think a lot of, a lot of my colleagues uh, likely voted no on the resolution because in fact it was precedent and perhaps would have preferred like I would have that we actually dealt with it in-house as Kevin McCarthy offered to do 24 hours before. I
1: think that uh, and I wasn't in the conversation but I think that McCarthy offered to take her off one committee but not both of her committees and I think he wanted to put her on a different committee and that was why Hoyer rejected it but I, I I wasn't part of the conversation. Maybe there are two different versions. Let me just ask you, because you have shown integrity throughout this process, not a surprise, but but you have shown integrity throughout this process. Two-thirds of the House Republicans, forget Marjorie Taylor Greene's insane conspiracy theories, two-thirds of the House uh, Republicans have endorsed the big lie conspiracy theory about the election. You have not. I, I'm not holding you responsible for what other people have done. But McCarthy, Scalise, and 140 others have either spread the big lie or voted to endorse the big lie, disenfranchise voters from Arizona, Pennsylvania. There are a lot of people who look at the grand old party and say, does this party now stand for conspiracy theories and lies?
3: Well, uh, it's a pretty loaded question there. I, would just, <laughs> it <is>. it <laughs> I would just say that, you know, after the election, I think I was probably the first Republican to, to recognize that uh, Joe Biden won the race. Absolutely,
1: I'm uh, not saying you.
3: I, I'm willing to work with them. I, I voted against uh, this COVID package a little bit earlier this afternoon because they didn't work with the Republicans. And there's a lot of things, I think, unrelated to COVID that are, are part of that. And we don't, frankly, know what we did virtually six weeks ago with the $900 billion uh, that, was, uh, that President Trump signed into law. So as a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus and uh, as a, actually as a vice chair of that, uh, we posed a lot of questions, didn't get any answers at all, and we're seeing this thing ramrodded through the Senate earlier this morning at, what, 5 in the morning, 51 to 50, and a very close call here in the House uh, an hour or two ago. So um, we can do better. Let, let me put it that way. We can do better. Okay, N-
1: not really addressing the question I asked, but you know what, it's Friday. We'll have you back. <laughs> I'll, I'll try again at another time. Republican Congressman Fred Upton of Michigan, thank you so much. Have a great weekend, sir. Appreciate it. That one dude, as Senator Sass called him, goes on trial in the Senate next week. Is Trump still the leader of the GOP? What does this mean for 2022? That's next. So much going on in our politics lead. Let's discuss with Atlantic senior editor Ron Brownstein and political White House correspondent Lara Baron lopez Lara, let me start with you. So Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska is facing censure from his state GOP, for criticizing President Trump's role in the Capitol riot. I wanna play a little clip from a video that he posted last night.
0: You are welcome to censure me again, but let's be clear about why this is happening. It's because I still believe, as you used to, that politics isn't about the weird worship of one dude. The party could purge Trump skeptics, but I'd like to convince you that not only is that civic cancer for the nation, it's just terrible for our party.
3: Now,
1: we should point out that voters just reelected Sasse for another six years in the Senate. Um, and he had been pretty quiet about Trump for like the previous year or year and a half or so. He was reelected with a 40 point uh, margin. Uh, what's your take on on Ben Sass? I mean, I'm happy to hear him say that, but uh, w- w- what do you think?
8: Well, like you said, Jake, he's taking a stronger uh stance after being reelected. And now that he has, he's safe for about six years. So, uh, but that being said, he is trying to, uh, along with a small handful of Republicans, point out that there is a decision that the GOP has to make right now. They have to decide whether or not they are going to stay with Trump and go along with conspiracy theories that have deep roots in anti-Semitism and in racism uh, and in white grievance, or whether they're going to make a break with that and decide that they're going to be honest with their voters and, and say that, that Trump lost the election and, and, and try to work to win over other voters rather than uh, just the base that they have right
1: now. Ron, you write in a new column that most Republican elected officials have decided that the risk of fighting Trump or Trumpism is too, it's too much to speak out. But clearly there are some who are willing to take the risk, uh, Ben Sass. She's not elected, but Cindy McCain, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, some are taking the risk. What is the SAS-Ducey calculation?
12: Well, look, they are the minority in the party. And and, I mean, if you look back at history, I think there's no question uh, that Republicans are putting of less resistance to the infiltration of the party by extremist groups today than they did in the 1960s with the John Birch Society. Just as I wrote a few months ago, if you compare the way Republicans responded to Joe McCarthy's lies and conspiracy theories in the 50s, there was more resistance to that than there was uh, to Trump's lies after the election. And and, and in those earlier cases, Jake, it wasn't like there was a profile encouraging Republicans, but at least there was a critical mass of resistance. And I think what you're seeing now is that for the vast majority of Republicans have decided that the Trump side of the party is too big to to excommunicate. And and the, the cycle they're in, the treadmill they're on, is that as they identify more with that extremism, they're losing ground in those white collar suburbs around the country, which makes them even more dependent on massive turnout among the Trump base and extremists. Uh, so it's very hard to see right now how the party restores a center of gravity. Only three Republican senators in states that did not vote twice for Trump. Only nine House Republicans in districts that did not vote for Trump. And the party has retreated to Trump country.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, Trump country is, in this case, not about trade deals. Uh, it's about conspiracy theories and lies. Laura, your Politico colleague, Melanie Zanona, had this interesting dig in her piece today, quote, when asked whether Republican leader Kevin McCarthy should have just settled matters with Green, Marjorie Taylor Green internally, Congressman Tom Reed of New York responded, I guess how I would answer that is I'm a big John Boehner fan, he said, referring to this former speaker mm. who dealt with his members in an upfront manner to avoid problematic votes. And I miss John Boehner every day. Uh, I understand why Congressman Reed says that. I, I, I think that Pretty much every single Republican leader, even including Newt Gingrich, might have handled this differently, don't you think?
8: Yeah, well, uh, I, as well as uh, both of you, were here when Boehner was Speaker, and and I remember Boehner very much putting a lot of his members in line, especially when they appeared to be uh, going out or embracing crazy conspiracy theories. Uh, he was very quick to do that. McCarthy on their, other hand, clearly has a different leadership strategy. He made a very calculated decision to embrace Trump when he went down to Mar-a-Lago, uh, after appearing to back away from him a tiny bit, uh, during the impeachment trial in the house. A- and then he went full force back into his arms, uh, and decided to not, uh, take matters into his own hands with Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, as you said earlier, Jake, he was only going to maybe take her off of one committee, try to get her put on another one. So that isn't exactly the punishment that Democrats were looking for to send a signal that this is unacceptable uh, uh, behavior in the House.
1: Yeah. Lara and lopez Ron Brownstein, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend to both of you. A first for the Biden administration, which could have dramatic global implications. That's next. In the world lead a major meeting in the White House Situation Room today on Iran amid warnings that the regime could be weeks away from producing a nuclear weapon. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live at the Pentagon for us. And Oren, Iran keeping up its pressure uh, on the U.S. right now, Iran is.
6: And that adds to the urgency of this meeting, which was the National Security Council meeting with the country's top national security and foreign policy advisors about Iran, questions of Iran's accelerating nuclear program, as well as questions of what to do about the JCPOA, the nuclear deal from back in 2015. Meanwhile, Iran is trying to keep the pressure on the U.S. Just last week, Iran's foreign minister said that if it wants the U.S. or if if the U.S. wants Iran to slow down its nuclear program, it needs to get back into the JCPOA and lift sanctions, a means of putting pressure on the U.S. to act and the aim there to try to get the U.S. back into the original JCPOA. Meanwhile, Iran has also announced a month ago that they're enriching uranium up to 20%, well past the 3.67% limit from the JCPOA, but still far short of what's considered weapons-grade uranium. Again, non-proliferation experts have said these are reversible steps, but the idea is to put pressure on the U.S. to act quickly. Of course, key U.S. allies in the region are also watching this. Israel, the UAE, trying to have conversations to keep the administration away from just going back to the original JCPOA, looking for a stronger, wider agreement from the Biden administration. Those conversations are ongoing. Jake, that this came so early in the Biden administration means
1: it's a key Issue for them. A very important story we're going to keep uh, staying on top of. Thanks so much, Oren, at the Pentagon. Up next, an invisible threat that you cannot see, you cannot smell, how the White House is going to attempt to tackle it with some surprising help. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, you can't see it, you can't smell it, but it's a danger to us all. CNN's Bill Weir reports.
7: Deep in the heart of Texas, in an oil field the size of Kansas, a little team is trying to solve a big problem by showing the world an invisible threat.
8: Where there's dark red regions,
2: that's where we found really, really high levels of methane.
7: Yes, they are methane hunters in search of that planet-cooking, climate-changing pollution, better known as natural gas. You can't see it or smell it. Unless you have infrared eyes and a laser spectroscope nose.
5: Someone must have just walked by the inlet and breathed. Uh. Is that right? It's that sensitive? Mm -hmm. It can pick
7: up your breath.
2: Oh, absolutely. Really? Yeah. So this is carbon
7: dioxide down here. Yeah. And this is methane. And in the Permian Basin, you don't have to fly far to find it. So you see it's going up there a bit? Yeah. Yeah.
6: Yep. Just like you called it. So we're downwind of... uh, Yeah. That facility? Yeah, so that's most likely coming from that site.
2: So what we found here in the Permian Basin is that operators are wasting enough gas to heat about 2 million homes a year.
7: Sometimes it leaks from old equipment or orphaned wells. And sometimes when there was no one to buy it, they just burn it in a practice known as flaring.
2: In fact, we found that the Permian Basin is emitting more than double any other oil and gas region in the United States.
7: Scientists agree that if Joe Biden is going to succeed in meeting the promise of the Paris Accord, fixing this is an urgent must. So one of his first executive orders began to roll back Donald Trump's free pass to methane leakers. But the very next week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed an executive order of his own.
6: I'm in Midland to make clear that Texas is going to protect the oil and gas industry from any type of hostile attack launched from Washington, D.C.
7: He ordered every state agency to bring him every reason to sue the Biden administration and seem eager to start an energy civil war calling out San Francisco for the recent ban of natural gas in new construction.
6: In Texas, we will not let cities use political correctness to dictate what energy source you use. We think the threat of climate change is very real. Much less hostile is Big Oil's biggest lobbyist. We support both industry actions and actions by the federal government in the United States and around the globe to address this very important issue that we know is existential in nature. But he argues oil
7: and gas will still be around for generations and that the only way to fix the methane problem is to build more pipelines.
6: We need a regulatory structure that allows uh, these pipelines to be built to ensure that we can get these products to market as quickly as possible.
7: But of course, the scientists would say that the fate of life as we know it depends on stopping that production as
6: soon as humanly possible. Can you have it both ways? This industry provides about 60% of the world's energy today. There is going to be a transition in energy. Uh, But I'm also confident that this industry is going to be around for a long time.
2: For example, ExxonMobil and some of the other big producers um, have set some pretty lofty goals for how they want to keep their emissions. But we found that here in the Permian Basin, the methane leak rate is over 10 times higher than what a lot of companies have set out to do.
7: So flying above it all is just another reminder that the true test of a man is what he does when he thinks no one is watching. And Jeff Bezos is buying those watchers $100 million methane sniffing satellite, Jake. And to talk about the international pressure, France recently canceled a $7 billion deal. Their government there deciding that Texas natural gas is just too dirty for them to burn in good conscience.
1: All right, Bill, we're with the latest in our Earth Matters series. Thanks so much, Bill. Appreciate it, as always. Finally, more than 458,000 Americans have died from coronavirus as of right now. Here's just one of their stories. Larry Conger was a 66-year-old husband and father and the head of maintenance at Hickory High School in North Carolina. To students, he was the unofficial school historian. And the epitome of kindness to staff, he was everyone's work dad. Conger was diagnosed with coronavirus then he spent a month on a ventilator before telling his wife, quote, tell the kids I love them. May his memory be a blessing. Our deepest condolences to his friends and family. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the Leads In, and our coverage on CNN continues right now. I will see you on Sunday morning on State of the Union.